1: Our today's story takes us to Davis, California, in April, 2013. A young 15-year-old boy named Daniel Marsh creeps through the dark streets of his hometown of Davis on the prowl. He wears a black hoodie, a mask, and a pair of gloves, and he carries nothing but a knife and an appetite for violence. Marsh spots an open window, slices the screen and enters the home of elderly couple Oliver Northrup and Claudia Maupin. Before long, he is standing over their bed, knife in hand. Police found Northrup and Maupin the next evening, stabbed a collective total of 128 times. Who would commit such a heinous crime? And why? Well, we are here to figure it all out. This is Invisible Heat. Hi, I'm Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Assad, Asad, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing okay. Yeah, can't complain. Prepping for a big trip across the country to Boston with a little baby girl. You don't like to travel, so I'm assuming you've not traveled with little infants in the past, but maybe you have.
1: I have, and we used to drive, so I've driven from Denver to D.C. Can you believe Oh, me?
2: wow. With kids? Both, two kids? Yes. Oh my goodness.
1: Under the age of four, I believe.
2: Wow, you're a super mom.
1: <laughs> I was, yeah.
2: <laughs> How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You know, something happened recently and I thought I'll share it with you and the listeners, but I'm more interested in knowing what's been happening in your life since we last spoke.
2: Oh man, not not too much. It's a lot of sleepless nights, as you are aware. And, uh, you know, for Rafaelio and our company, we're trying a bunch of new projects. I can't remember if we mentioned it on here, but we have an open screenplay contest for American Muslims who want to take their first stab at writing a screenplay or even if you have experience. And so we're looking for scripts of 10 to 20 pages on uh, Muslim life in America. And so if anybody is interested in learning more, rafaleon.com slash Ramadan. And so we're, we're working on, on that. So that's, that's kind of taken over my life.
1: Oh my gosh, said that's great. I am sure a lot of people will apply.
2: I'm hoping, yeah. I mean, so far the interest has been really phenomenal and we all know that we need these type of stories out there. And so, yeah, we're excited to get that out there. What's going on in your life?
1: Wonderful. So I was telling you about this story that I saved for invisible hate. So recently I was in the car with my husband and we were driving along when suddenly we find ourselves literally stuck behind a super slow car in the left lane, Asad. And I don't know if that's happened to you ever but it is annoying.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, happens. To, it has happened to me, and I also get annoyed. Though I try to be understanding as well.
1: Okay, so my husband was not understanding. He starts getting all fidgety, and he's swerving a bit. And then jokingly, he says, "Oh, the driver must be a woman." Oh no! And as a I was so pissed. So I'm pissed in my mind and I'm trying to keep calm. And I know why he said it. He just wanted some reaction out of me. Yeah, right? he wanted
2: to get a rise out of you. Yeah, right, of course. I, right. I would do the same thing, of course. That's why I think Wakasa and I would get along greatly. I think we'd be <laughs> best friends.
1: Absolutely. So here's what happens. As we finally pass the car, I glance over because I was so curious. And I see that it's actually a man behind the wheel. And both of us couldn't stop laughing at this assumption, right? Because it was like, oh, my gosh, it's a man. And then my husband goes, it must be an older guy. And I'm like, oh, my God, now you're being an ageist.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He He was just pushing all your buttons.
1: Right. But we couldn't stop laughing at this assumption. But it got me thinking that we make these assumptions, right, without knowing the whole story, And although he and I were joking about it, things happen with people, right? A lot of assumptions happen. A lot of stereotypes are formed. And I was thinking, you know, this is a good lesson learned with the smattering of laughter, I guess.
2: Agreed. Yeah. I also will say that when people get behind the wheel they really become such a different person of themselves and they would act in ways that is different than they would act in, you know, real life, in home and at work. It's like there's something about being in the car, being stuck in traffic or behind a, a quote-unquote bad driver that really brings out the worst in people. In right,
1: life, <laughs> right, 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 exactly. So are you ready for today's story, said? Yeah, let's do it. So the
2: facts of this case are
1: quite scary.
2: Yeah, very scary. You know, I have to say that it was incredibly unsettling to kind of hear those details of the story. You know, I think the most shocking part of the case is that the perpetrator is 15 years old at the time. I mean, just uh, so young, Zadia.
1: Absolutely, Asad. Daniel Marsh was only 15 and was very, very troubled. Now, according to his police interview, for several years leading up to the murders, Marsh had been fantasizing about killing someone. I said, this is strange to me, right? Somebody fantasizing about killing another human. I'm sure it happens, but this is the first time I have heard of it.
2: Yeah, I think we've seen people fantasize or talked about people fantasizing about killing themselves um, or harming themselves but I think this is the first time yeah that we've talked about someone who is actively fantasizing about harming or killing someone else Though, you know I'm sure it happens often with the perpetrators that we've talked about in these cases.
1: Exactly so every time he looked at an individual he saw flashes of images of himself killing them and the many ways in which he might go about doing so on April 14th 2013, Marsh decides to finally act on these impulses.
2: That night I just I couldn't
1: take it anymore. I had to do it. I lost control. He takes to the streets under the cover of darkness and wanders the quiet neighborhood of Davis, California, looking for an open window. The identities of the victims are irrelevant to him. He'll take what he can get. 87-year-old Oliver Northrup and 76-year-old Claudia Maupin are the unlucky souls who chose to leave their window open that night. Marsh spots the opening, slices the screen with his knife and climbs into the house. He then makes his way to the bedroom where the couple are sound asleep and stands above them, preparing for his act of violence and then he starts stabbing. He stabs Northrop 61 times and Maupin 67 times. That's brutal. The couple wakes up and begins to scream for help. But this only seems to encourage him further and he continues his violent frenzy. But he doesn't stop there. Marsh then begins what can be only described as experimentation. He places a cell phone into Maupin's abdomen and a drinking glass into Northrip's stomach. Whoa. He even tries to remove one of Maupin's eyes in an attempt to see what an eye looks like, but is unable to do so and gives up.
2: That's just gruesome.
1: And then he's gone leaving just as quickly as he had come in.
2: I mean, Sadia, those are some really gory details, and I feel like we've never kind of seen or talked about something this gruesome before. Uh, Just, I mean, 61 times you said and 67 times, so, you know, over 120 stab wounds for these people, and then he tries to, put his cell phone in his abdomen and a drinking glass in the stomach, like just some really sick shit. I I mean, attempting to remove the eye because he was just kind of wanting to see what it looked like. I mean, I, I just can't believe it. And then for these two people to die in essentially in their sleep in the security and comfort of their own home. I mean, it's just devastating. Was there any kind of connection between Marsh and, Mop in Northrop, or did these murders really just kind of come because of an open window?
1: So, Asit, the only connection between Marsh and his victims seems to be that of proximity. Now, the couple lived just two doors down from Daniel's father, Bill Marsh, and less than a mile away from his mother, Sherry Marsh, whom he lived with and whose house he had come from that night. Claudia Maupin had first moved to Davis, California in 1995, when the region was still considered to be one of California's safest cities. And let me tell you something, Asad. Now, I sometimes keep my window open at night. Hmm. And as I was researching for this and reading through the script, I have stopped keeping my window open. This is how Freaked out I am.
2: Oh, it's it's certainly freaky. What I will say is that if someone wants to come into your house, they're gonna find a way to come into your house.
1: Yeah, you're right. Anyways, going back to the case, according to a CBS News interview with Maupin's daughter, Victoria Hurd, Maupin was excited to immerse herself in the youthful energy of a college town and immediately became involved in the community attending services at a local Unitarian church in hopes of meeting her third husband. It was there that she met Oliver Northrup, one of the church's founding members. Northrup was known in the community as a social activist, World War II veteran, and successful criminal defense attorney. Imagine, said. The person who was murdered so brutally was himself a criminal defense attorney.
2: Yeah, these these two seem just like, you know, community members and good good people part of the community. Yeah. It's it's so sad.
1: Exactly. So anyways, the couple connected instantly and decided to marry in 1996. They had been happily living together in Davis since then when Marsh committed this heinous crime in 2013. But other than living in the same community as Marsh, there seems to have been very little connection between the couple and the boy. Ultimately, it did come down to an open window and an unfortunate opportunity that this provided Marsh a very troubled kid.
2: Yeah, sadly. so that's like the second or third time that you've mentioned that he was a quote-unquote troubled child. Do we have any information about, you know, his background and why he was kind of a quote-unquote troubled kid?
1: So it seems that Daniel Marsh's troubled mental state began at a very young age. A child of divorce, Marsh had witnessed his mother and her marriage after having an affair with his teacher when he was 10 years old. Aware of his teacher's involvement in his parents' divorce, Marsh had become so overcome with anger that he claimed to have wanted to strangle her. According to his police interview, this was the first time that he fantasized about killing someone.
2: Wow, 10 years old.
1: Yeah, obviously there was a trigger, right? Marsh didn't give in to these initial impulses, but instead found other ways of expressing his rage. One of the primary ways that he did this was through self harm.
2: You know, a lot of times self harm doesn't go beyond just that, but uh, yeah.
1: So for a period of time, he cut himself and then resorted to starving himself, for which he ended up in an eating disorder clinic for 25 days. Wow. Marsh even attempted to take his life four separate times.
2: Oh, clearly, very troubled. Yeah.
1: Exactly. In December 2012, Marsh admitted to a school counselor that he often fantasized about killing people. This triggered immediate alarm and the police department was called to the school to speak to Marsh. He was hospitalized right away but upon release seemed even worse than before. Marsh continued to engage in destructive, concerning behaviors, becoming obsessed with something called gore porn strangling a cat in the street and talking about killing more than ever before. These behaviors came to a head on April 14th, 2013.
2: Yes, Adi, you know, it it seems like the school, at least in this case, and maybe even the police did everything right in terms of when they saw something that caused an alarm, they... Got him the help that, you know, he needed at the time. It just seems like the help wasn't enough. Right. And it seems like, yeah, he has a really long history of concerning behavior and there were people that were trying to help. Did doctors ever perform like a psychological evaluation on him?
1: So, said you're absolutely right. In the years leading up to the 2013 murders, Marsh met with various therapists and doctors who tried to help him prescribing different medications none of which seems to have been particularly successful and this is the part that really freaks me out asad because there were people who knew something was wrong with this kid and they were trying to help and marsh was given medications and there was a support system built around helping him and yet none of those things helped in the end right Right. yeah At the time of the murders, Marsh was taking the antidepressant Zoloft for his anorexia and suicidal thoughts, suggesting that he had been diagnosed with both anorexia and depression of some kind. However, after Marsh had been caught and arrested for double homicide, investigators sought to perform further evaluations. Through this process, several experts diagnosed Marsh as a psychopath. Whoa. Yeah, so this is interesting, right? They were able to do a determination, but that determination to me is also so scary.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I, I don't even know the definition of what a psychopath actually is, but obviously colloquially, it doesn't sound great. And so, yeah, this is really fascinating to me.
1: Right, Asad. So according to a CBS News interview with forensic psychologist Matthew Logan, an expert on psychopaths, I didn't even know, Asad, there are experts on psychopaths, by the way. Marsh scored 35.8 out of 40 on the widely used psychopathy checklist. One of the highest scores he has ever seen. Can you believe it?
2: That's crazy.
1: According to Oxford Dictionary, a person is called a psychopath if they exhibit chronic mental disorder with abnormal or violent social behavior. I'm sure there is a medical definition and there are symptoms that we are not familiar with and hence we cannot comment on that, but that's the general definition of a psychopath. Mm, That's good to know. And in his police interview, Asad Marsh admitted that he doesn't feel empathy like normal people do. So this is one of the symptoms of psychopaths.
2: I looked up sociopath and psychopath because I always found it fascinating. And the more I've aged, the more I can relate. Because I don't feel sympathy for other people. At all. I don't feel empathy for them. And whether I like that or not, it's the way it is. It's just like... I want to hurt people. I want to kill people, but I don't want to want that. I wish it wasn't that way. That's a really scary concept, Sadia, to have these psychopathic thoughts that you don't want to be having and you just can't get rid of. It's really scary to me.
1: I said I was thinking about the same thing. Now, it's one thing to have all these psychopathic thoughts, but then not being able to get rid of them and eventually act on them That really is some crazy shit. And I would never, ever want to go through that.
2: So now we know all about Marsh and his history, but we have yet to discuss how he was actually caught and what came after. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss the complicated details of the investigation and the ensuing court cases following the murders. We'll be right back.
1: Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, it's the morning of April 14, 2013 and the Northrop Maupin residence is eerily quiet. People are yet to discover the horrific tragedy that has unfolded. Concerns begin to surface when the couple fails to show up to church that day, followed by several unanswered phone calls. But that's just one missed service, right? Nothing to get too concerned over. And then Northrop uncharacteristically misses his local folk band gig. And people are officially worried. Northrop's son and grandson visit the condo and are met with silence when they ring the doorbell. But decide to leave, assuming that they must not be home. Maupin's stepdaughter later comes to check on them as well and decides to investigate further. Walking around to the back of the house, she sees the slashed screen and several blood stains through the window and immediately knows that something horrible has happened. Police soon arrive on the scene and enter the house only to find the destroyed bodies of Northrop and Maupin. And so the investigation began. But investigators immediately ran into roadblocks, finding no physical forensic evidence to work with. Marsh had essentially committed the perfect crime, taping up his shoes to avoid leaving footprints, wearing gloves to prevent stray fingerprints, and covering his face with a mask to avoid identification.
2: Sally, that's crazy. I mean, as a 15-year-old, to be that um i don't know smart i guess when it comes to committing crimes i guess like i i don't know if at 15 i would know to to do that in order to avoid being caught and so yeah crazy there was a lot of planning that went into actually doing this
1: you're absolutely right i said that really surprised me as well he's only 15 and the way he did everything so meticulously And it also made me think, where was he getting his information from, right? Mm -hmm. Because all that he did, an ordinary person doesn't know all this shit, right?
2: Yeah, (laughs) I certainly don't.
1: Anyways, Yolo County DHF Wrightsig said,
2: I was certain that they were going to find some forensic evidence in the crime scene. A fingerprint, DNA, um, shoe prints, uh, something. They found nothing.
1: The only information that the police were able to extract from the crime scene was that there were no valuables missing, meaning that this had not been a burglary. Twenty-five FBA agents and experienced task force officers swarmed the neighborhood on the lookout for any suspicious activity or evidence of any kind. The lack of evidence did not bode well for Northrop's son, Robert, and his two sons, Oliver and Tony. Oliver has schizophrenia, making him a suspect in the eyes of the investigators due to his atypical psychological experiences. Oh,
2: wow. So they're looking at the family. Oh, my goodness.
1: Exactly, said. Tony, too, was viewed with suspicion as police found a disturbing drawing by him Featuring a man with a knife standing over two sleeping children.
2: Wow, so both grandkids are suspects. Wow, this is really fascinating.
1: Exactly, I said. But what's more scary is how coincidental this drawing is, how similar it is to what happened, right? Right. Replace two sleeping children with two adults. Even worse, police happened to search Robert's home the day after his carpets had been steam cleaned, making it seem as if he had been trying to clean blood out of them.
2: Wow, this is fascinating, right? Like, this must have been such a really challenging time for the family because, you know, they're grieving, obviously, this horrible tragedy. And then for them to be, you know, some of the suspects, I mean, whoo. That's really heavy.
1: According to a CBS News interview with Robert, the family felt persecuted and wronged, now viewed with suspicion by investigators, neighbors, and friends for something that they were victims of themselves and had nothing to do with. Some of this suspicion remained even after Marsh had been caught. And this is surprising to me, Asad. Police still suspected them after the kid was caught.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is kind of normal, whether it's the police or society. Like once you once you get an impression about something that happens, and you know, as we know, when facts come out, it's really hard to get that first initial impression out of your head, right? And so, I'm not surprised that people had a hard time uh, with giving up their suspicions, but it's, and it's it's just really sad.
1: You're right, Assad. But, you know, these suspicions, especially when they are unwarranted, can have real consequences, Mm -hmm. right? So, Tony in particular did not take the situation well. And sadly, three years after the murders, he committed suicide.
2: Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's tragic. So tragic. Sadly, just going back to the case now, the investigators had no forensic evidence to work with, so much so that they resorted to investigating the family. It's like, how did Marsh ultimately get caught?
1: So Asad, he almost wasn't, but everything changed two months after the murders when the police received an anonymous tip. It was 17-year-old Alvaro Carabay, and he claimed that the perpetrator of the unsolved double homicide was his best friend Daniel Marsh. Marsh had bragged to Garibay about the success of his double homicide attempt several weeks earlier, but Garibay had been too scared to come forward. Honestly, I said I would be so scared if my friend did something like this.
2: Yeah, Sadie, I can't even fathom what it's like to turn in your best friend to the police for a double homicide of of all things, right? But without. Garbey's anonymous tip, like, who knows, Marsh could still be roaming free today, right?
1: Right, I said because Garabay had finally decided to let the police know because Marsh had begun threatening to kill again. Wow. Causing Garabay to fear for his life. Yeah. Once the police had obtained this information, they immediately brought Marsh in for questioning. At first, Marsh was quick to deny any involvement in the murders putting up a carefully constructed facade. It took them 3 hours and 38 minutes, but finally he began to fall apart, eventually not only admitting to the mergers of Oliver Northrup and Claudia Maupin, but even telling investigators exactly how he had done it, and all about the psychopathic urges that drove him to do so. Marsh's guilt was further confirmed when police found his bloody clothes and knife hidden in his mother's house. So the police had finally found the killer, and now it was time for Daniel Marsh to go on trial.
2: I'm glad that they found, actually, forensic evidence, because, you know, it's hard these days to trust a confession given to police, you know, after... Multiple hours, um, and so I'm glad that there was other evidence there to to connect Marsh to the crime scene to the crime. But Sadia, if I recall, the trial process was a bit complicated, was it not?
1: Right, I so said the trial did in fact become a little complicated because Marsh was a juvenile being tried as an adult. Oh,
2: right, because he was 15 years old.
1: Right. However, initially, due to the severity of his crimes. This decision was relatively unopposed and the trial went on as expected, so everybody was okay with trying him as an adult. Marsh's lawyers centered their argument around a defense of insanity, arguing that the antidepressant drug Zoloft that he was on for his anorexia and suicide attempts had induced a temporary state of insanity causing the 15-year-old to go into a violent frenzy, murdering Northrop and Maupin. However, based on Marsh's history of violent, psychopathic thoughts and behaviours, it was pretty clear that these impulses had existed within him before he had ever taken Mm. so often. Based on this knowledge, after two hours of deliberation, on September 16, 2014, the jury found Marsh sane and guilty of first-degree murder, allowing the judge to sentence him to the maximum sentence of 52 years to life.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's not surprising, you know, I think that given what he did to northrop and maupin and then also as you mentioned his history of uh psychotic thoughts like i think i, I can see why a jury would consider him sane and then consider him guilty you know
1: right as it but that's the relatively simple part of the trial this is where it gets tricky The 2016 election, California Waters approved Proposition 57, a law that removed the ability of district attorneys to directly file juvenile cases in adult court and instead required a fitness hearing and a subsequent ruling by a judge.
2: Oh, What's a fitness hearing?
1: So a fitness hearing is a hearing in which a judge determines with the help of a psychiatrist whether or not the defendant is unfit to stand trial. What this essentially ends up being for cases such as marshes is a trial to determine if a minor defender should be handled by a juvenile court or transferred to an adult court. Hmm. So this is a trial in a trial, Asad. It is also important to distinguish between the implications of being tried in a juvenile court versus an adult court. If tried as a juvenile, the maximum sentence runs only until age 25, meaning that regardless of the outcome, once Marsh turns 25, he would be released without parole or supervision and his record would be expunged. Now, this is really scary to me, Asad, because of his psychotic thoughts. Imagine this kid being released out in the open, his record expunged. Who knows what he could or would do?
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, we've seen this in other cases that we've talked about with juveniles who've done crimes and then get out at 25. Teens' brains don't develop fully until their mid-20s. And so, you know, for me, I I don't disagree that, like, it seems for the violence that he committed 10 years would not be long enough for him to be in jail. But, you know, I I, I would hope that, uh, you know, with the right therapy and interventions, you know, maybe he could lead a productive life after the age of 25. But that's just me.
1: You're right. said that I would have agreed. But in this case, we know that he is a psychopath, which is very different, right? Yeah. And even though Marsh was at this point 21 and well past the age in which one is eligible for juvenile sentencing, because he had been 15 at the time of the murders, his case could very well return to court retrospectively, making him eligible to be tried as a juvenile. Mm.
2: So basically, this means that Proposition 57 really has like a lot of potential impact for him and his ultimate fate
1: exactly and marsh was well aware of this fact before a new code date had even been set he released a video of his own personal tedx talks in which he declared that he was reformed and deserved a second chance Remember, as I said, going back to the definition of psychopath, they are also manipulative and exploitative. Mm, So I think that's what's happening here.
2: Mm, That's interesting.
1: In the video, Marsh explained that he had come from a damaging childhood that left him emotionally disconnected and angry. He even claimed to have been sexually abused as a child by two different individuals. While the video was taken down within 48 hours, the message was clear. Marsh believed that he was reformed and sought to garner as much sympathy as possible so that he may be retried as a juvenile and released at the age of 25, in just 4 short years. In 2018, Marsh underwent a Yolo County Superior Court hearing to determine whether his case should have been tried in juvenile court back in 2014. Upon taking the stat, Marsh made a very similar argument as that of the one made in the TEDx Talks video, claiming that he had. Overcome his mental illness and worked through the majority of his anger and hate, and therefore deserved a second chance. Despite this, Judge Samuel McAdam rejected Marsh's resentencing bid in October of 2018, deciding that Marsh's release was simply not a risk worth taking. Mm. The third appellate district then upheld his ruling.
2: So that is then the end of it, I'm I'm guessing?
1: Unfortunately that was far from the end of it, I said Mars then took a new approach. In September of 2018, California Governor Jerry Brown signed a law known as SB1391. This new law made it impossible to ever try 14- or 15-year-old offenders as adults, regardless of the circumstances of the crime.
2: Oh, fascinating.
1: Yeah. The law took effect on January 1, 2019, shortly after Marsh's previous resentencing bid had been rejected. However, because the new law took effect so close to McAdams' rejection of Marsh's bid, it was unclear as to whether the judgment in Marsh's case had been final when SB 1391 had come into law. Using this discrepancy to their advantage, Marsh's lawyers sent the case back to the Appellate Court in an attempt to appeal their previous ruling with sp 1391, now on their side. The Appellate Court ultimately dismissed Marsh's appeal in September 2021, ruling that his judgment had been finalized in 2018, making him officially ineligible for resentencing in juvenile court. And yet Marsh's case still hasn't been put to rest. His lawyers are trying all different strategies to get resentencing bid approved for him, Asad. But as of right now, Marsh will continue to serve his 52 years of life. But it's clear that his lawyers are not giving up anytime soon.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I totally get that, you know, Marsh's lawyers will continue to try to get him out early. And I, that's what they're paid to do if they're getting paid. So, sadly, now that we kind of have gone through the facts of the crime um, and the backstories of the victims and the perpetrators and the details of the investigation and the trial. So, you know, the question remains, was this murder considered a hate crime? What do you think?
1: I said this is an interesting crime and our listeners may be surprised why did we even cover it, but we wanted to shed light on judicial system and the process and how it can be so confusing at times and how it may or may not benefit perpetrators in terms of it being a hate crime look here are the facts both daniel marsh and the couple were white neither were members of a minority group davis as a whole is a predominantly white region of california 61.3 percent white people Um, One thing that I was thinking about was, you know, the couple's advanced age, they were 87 and 76. So perceptions of the elderly as weak or vulnerable, making them easier targets, but that would still not amount to it being a hate crime because I don't think Marsh was targeting them because they were older he saw an opportunity in open window and decided to randomly target them he would have done the same thing if he found opportunity somewhere else so to me it seems there is very little evidence to prove this as a hate crime it was undoubtedly a brutal brutal murder by a psychopath but not a hate crime
2: Yeah, you know, so I I don't disagree. I I really want to double click on the point, though, that, you know, this was an attack about uh, on two very old, you know, people, 87 and 76, as we talked about, and that I don't think age is a protected status, but maybe it should be. And, you know, I question whether or not Marsh targeted them specifically. I know that he said that it was random and that it was just because there was an open window, but, you know, these the couple lived a couple of doors down from him I think like if you think about your neighborhood you know who lives in what houses right and so like the fact that he quote-unquote shows that at random I, I don't know if I necessarily believe that and in that sense I feel like potentially they were targeted because of their age because he knew that they wouldn't fight back and or couldn't fight back because of their advanced age and and so you know for me like I think this discussion of whether or not a a hate crime against elderly people because they're targeted for their age is an interesting conversation to have.
1: I hear you, but I guess, as always, we can agree to disagree. <laughs> Although I will say this, I am curious to know what our listeners are thinking. Yeah. Do they think it was a hate crime or not? And they can always write to us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. And if they do write to us, we may share their thoughts on our next episode or one of our next episodes.
2: So, Sadia, what's the latest with Daniel? Where is he now?
1: So, as Daniel Marsh is now 26 years old, he continues to serve his sentence at the R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, but is still attempting to reduce his sentence. The families of his victims remain affected by the horrible, horrible tragedy that he inflicted upon them 10 years ago and continue to pray that he remains in jail. For them, the tragedy will continue until they can rest assured that Marsh will remain in prison for many years to come. Thank you all for listening to Invisible Hate. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. just search for Invisible Hate Podcast.
2: Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelio Media and Immigrant Lee. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Isabel Havens, Emmanuel Monahan, Lindsay Gamble, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, I'm Asad The
1: Butt. And I'm Sadia Khan.